Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, So we are getting closer to the future. Which sounds like I'm high, but of course, uh, I'm not, question mark. You don't know that. (laughs) So we're only, what, three weeks ahead at this point? You know, we have been more, I think. Yeah, we are recording episode 62, and episode 60 will be dropping on this coming Thursday. Anyway, my point is... You're going to hear this Thanksgiving week. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you enjoy that. Unless you're in Canada. If you're in Canada, then fuck you. It's not Thanksgiving. Enjoy your moose. Uh, But anyway, Elon Musk has just taken over Twitter. And the spectacular shit show has just been amazing to watch as someone who is terminally online. Uh, You, brother Matt, I know are less online. But uh, it's just amazing to see a profoundly stupid person fail so publicly and so badly at a thing he spent $44 billion on. I mean, this week I've been online a little less because I've had a bunch of nights where I'm busy and thus have been avoiding social media because I don't want to know who's been winning the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions games until Amber and I can watch them, uh, which we will be doing finishing after we record this i have very specific spoiler phobias many things i don't mind i do not want to know who won jeopardy until i can see it i got uh, a, a a taste of the celebrity tournament that they're running in prime time and that's been fun yes um i'm not here for any of will wheaton's participation in it though don't <laughs> care for that man but but yes elon musk speaking of people you don't we don't care for again lex luthor of the real world only less competent oh stunningly less competent i mean i've seen just little bits of him getting into a twitter feud with stephen king don't get into a twitter (laughs) feud with stephen king stephen king is a professional writer stephen king will talk rings around you elon musk so so if you if you miss this right King is complaining, not even complaining so much because he doesn't give a fuck, right? Uh, about the changes to the verification slash Twitter blue uh, service that would, uh, at the time, right? At the time that it was pitched, it was going to be $20. $20 to continue to have your 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 account verified and, you know, other supposed benefits. And so King is like, fuck that. That's dumb. Because, like, again, what does he care? He's Stephen King. You know, he's providing content for this hell site. And then Elon Musk crawls up in his mentions and is like, nah, would you do it for $8? Would you consider $8? I'm like, you fucking moron. You are a billionaire haggling with a millionaire over 12 bucks. That's so dumb. Yeah. Stephen King doesn't give a good goddamn about $12. He cares that it's fucking stupid. Right. This is the principle. This is 
this is a Mena complaining about, you know, <laughs> somebody, you know, I don't know what, but it's, it, the issue is not to do with the money. Not. Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy who bought the van who ran him over just to fucking destroy it. He doesn't care about money. No. Uh, I, I, yeah. Let's see how long, how long it takes for Musk to run Twitter into the ground. Hey, by Thanksgiving, it might already be in the ground. This might all be all this. Twitter might not exist anymore by the I, time the people listen to this. I might have to be changing the, the script at the end to give new social media tags for us. <laughs> We're all going to parlor. <laughs> uh, surprise! I'm, anti- I'm an anti-Semite. Who knew? <laughs> oh, God. They don't let someone with the name Lazowitz on parlor. oh i gave myself a sad sorry (laughs) well don't worry because we're we're moving on to happier times less political discussions somewhat actually we're gonna get there's gonna be some politics in here when we get to one of these stories it's it's thanksgiving week and so i mean i guess the second time we've done it makes it a tradition so this is our annual tradition to give you an episode you can listen to with the little ones around the Thanksgiving table. So it's time for three more all-ages Batman stories. Our first book of the night is Batman's Mystery Casebook. This is the recent original graphic novel written by Sholly Fish with pencils and inks by Christopher Uminga, colors by Silvana Breeze, letters by Daron Bennett, with Morgan Martinez and edited by Christy Quinn. The cover date is August of 2022. Can you solve cases alongside Batman? Find out in this short collection of mystery stories. This is a delight. Yes. This is very, very fun. It is absolutely and admittedly pretty much a trifle but it is a delightful trifle yeah we we just did this for the uh for the print column and look i'm gonna be honest with uh with the listeners out there i i have never done this before i have never ever failed to finish reading something that i was writing about for for the print bat chat column but i purposely left I don't know the last couple of cases unread for this. I was like, I want to save something for the pod. This is so enjoyable. I love this so much. This was such a good time because as we talked about, it scratches that, that just, just perfect spot of those fun as hell encyclopedia Brown books where you could read it and figure it out. And I'm like, I knew that I think I solved that mystery. And I'll tell you what, some of these, like, I could figure out the general idea of what was going on, but the specifics, nope, Batman was still smarter than me. One of these is absolutely, I'm pretty sure I talked about this in the column, cribbed from the first Encyclopedia Brown. Specifically, the case entitled The Case of the History Mystery. This is also by far the most sholly fish of these stories. We're going to be covering another sholly fish in tonight's episode. Sholly fish has been writing 
Batman and Scooby-Doo comics for years. But Charlie Fish has an incredibly deep knowledge of DC. Thus, in this story, he wound up including Enemy Ace, Hans von Hammer, who is a DC character from these World War I stories. This is a deep cut for anybody who is not as deeply entrenched in DC lore or a huge fan of Garth Ennis, who wrote some Enemy Ace, as I am. And so... A, it was one thing where I read it, it was like, ah, that's that, that's a Sholly Fish touch right there. But there is an Encyclopedia Brown story in that first Encyclopedia Brown book where Bugs Meany, the absolute poster child for nominative determinism, uh, <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown's nemesis, has this a Civil War sword. And it's gifted to his relative, his ancestor, and it says inscribed on it, you know, given at the first battle of Bull Run in insert year here. Oh, I can I can solve this mystery right now. Yep. Because they that, didn't know it was there was gonna be a sequel. Exactly. And that's what we get in this, where it's the medal that they have says First World War in nineteen seventeen, when there no one would know there was gonna be a second world war at that point. So this is literally the same thing, just transposed into a different war, which I am fine with. It's playing on a theme, and it's, I think, probably there as a fun nod for those of us who are old enough to have read those Encyclopedia Brown books when they were in their youth. Ah, Goddamn love Encyclopedia Brown. One more thing about Charlie Fish that I want to circle back to. Reading his bio developmental psychologist that's impressive shit i met him at a con a number of years ago very nice guy very nice guy i i have always wanted to get him on wmq but he's not somebody who has a a major online presence so i've just been kind of waiting hoping he'll be at a con again so i can be like hey listen i would love to have you on my podcast to talk about bat scoob because bat scoob Batscoob. Matt loves Batscoob. Hey, I do. And we'll have discussions about that later on, too. So this book has 15 chapters, including a prologue and an epilogue, seven stories, and six of these Bat Cave crime lab sequences where they look at the way detectives investigate crimes, mostly forensically, but we have some other stuff about witness testimony and things like that. It makes for a fun book. You had specific things about those interstitials when we did the column, correct? Yeah, uh, putting on my super-duper annoying liberal hat, no, I, I learned about uh, crime scene investigation from John Oliver. <laughs> the one thing I would say about this stuff is that it does tend to be more art than science, especially something like fingerprints, tire analysis, shoe tread analysis. Like it is not as scientific as you can really put in a child in, in a children's book like that. That's my only pushback I would give against it. 
And that's something they really kind of get to in a roundabout way when you get to the eyewitness chapter, which is one of the things I hadn't read when we did the column, because it does say that eyewitness testimony can be unreliable. And they do, they put a little exercise in there and they put a trick question in there. Like it's it's really drives home that point. So I wish we could have just had a, just a little taste of that. Like in the fingerprint chapter, fingerprint analysis as done by humans who can make mistakes, but everyone seriously does have, you know, a unique fingerprint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A very valid point. So through these stories, and we get, maybe not all, but most of your really prominent bat rogues. You've got a Joker and Harley story. You have a Riddler story. You have a Freeze story. You have a Two-Face story. A Catwoman. The Penguin is featured in that two-page spread that's part of the eyewitness testimony thing. You've got a delightfully schlubby looking Bullock. Not necessarily slovenly like we've seen him, but he's looks like kind of an unmade bed. And I like that. And our bat family is very clearly, it's just Batman, Robin and Batgirl. And it's, I, I think probably it's Grayson. Cause we've got the short shorts here. Did you have a favorite amongst them? I was just thinking about case of the cold cash. And again, another Encyclopedia Brown trick where it would just get to that moment in a lot of these uh, stories like, ah, yes, you witnessed. I know that you lied and you were in on the caper. You're going to jail. Ah, but how did how did Batman know? Like just that delightful just twist at the end. Yeah, the the noose tightening around uh, whatever nefarious liar we have. Oh, Case of the Cold Cash, I liked. History Mystery was good. Art Attack was also good. In kind of that uh, locked room kind of mystery way. I was trying to remember, remember the specifics of the digital ghost. I know I had, I had to think about that one for a while. Yeah, that one was one of the trickier ones where it had to do with... And it, that was one where you had to really be paying attention to the art. Because that one was a thing with time codes and the way shadows fell. So you really had to be paying attention. Again, because of the Encyclopedia Brown and the DC deep nature of it, the case of the history mystery was one of my favorites. I liked the the Two-Face one, Dual Identity. But that was one where it felt like you needed additional knowledge to really solve that case. It was very obvious to me when it's like, okay, we've got these 10 apartments. One of them is Two-Face's hideout. Oh, somebody's name in there is Janus. Guess what? But we went next level. Janus Bartlett. Bartlett being a pair. pair. That was very good. That was very good. And that it's apartment 10. 10 in binary is two. It's like there were all kinds of levels. There were layers. Yes. I also the the final case the the Joker the the case of the perilous parade I enjoyed not just because I was like oh again that was I did not pick that was the one I didn't get and I was like oh duh how did I not notice the art on that one but also because in the end it's uh, Alfred wins the day 
And it's like, oh, yay. I love it when Alfred wins the day. I just thought the cakes looked funny. So I was like, uh, I guess the I guess the cake the cake is the uh, the bad one. I was pretty sure it was going to be that because it was just the one that seemed the most sort of out of place. But I also love the big Martian Manhunter balloon in the background of the panel where you see the cake. And I got to say, I mean, the art here, Uminga's art is unconventional, but it absolutely works with this book. And I would love the final page, which is a splash as like, you know, a print or a poster. It looks great. It's just Batman and Robin and Batgirl and then all the villains sort of looming in the background, including a bunch who weren't in the book. It looks really cool. Mm, plenty of places to go for a sequel. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's definitely room to do another. Like, Make this a, a yearly or even quarterly. I mean, probably quarterly would be a bit much, but yearly thing. I would love to get more of these. Oh, oh, oh. Or an ongoing where you had to wait to figure out the solution. Oh, yeah. I would, yes, I could get behind that. That would be fun. And I mean, this is the kind of thing, listen, I am I am childless by choice. Amber and I do not have kids. We don't intend to have kids. But this is the kind of thing I could absolutely see, you know, sitting around with your kid and going through it and trying to see if they can put the, the solution together and having a fun time of it. We'll get to ranking in a bit because I don't think we're quite done yet. But, well, I don't think this is going to rank as high as some of the other stuff we've done because it is sort of trifly. It's just so fun. It's a perfect book it for is. tonight. And it's got that next level of ambition, right? It's not just an all-ages Batman story. It's an all-ages Batman detective story, like literally where you can figure out the mystery as you're reading along. I mean, I don't I don't know what the interstitials really add to this. I think it would have been a perfectly fine project without it, but I, you know, good on them for trying to throw something else in there, I guess. Yeah, I think that this was trying to add another level to it to make it a little educational as well as amusing. But I think it is educational in that it's teaching sideways thinking. It's teaching observation. I think there's a lot of people who can look back at reading Encyclopedia Brown and that helping you understand the way to look at things like this and to solve puzzles and problems it's rare i mean i've read most of these all ages dc books and there have been very few amongst them that i've been like oh that was not worth my reading but this one stands as one of my favorites absolutely so uh do you have anything else I think that's it for me. So that means it's time to put Batman's Mystery Case Book on the big board. Okay. We currently have 183 stories on the big board. Number one remains Batman Year One, the post crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 30 is Sleigh Ride, where 
Joker takes Tim Drake on a trip through the Gotham streets. Number 60 is my beginning and my probable end. The story of Bruce Wayne's youth uh, in conversation with Leslie Tompkins. And coming in at number 69 is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 201-203 Cold Case. Number 90 is Fool's Errand, where Batman and the Joker do a Silence of the Lambs. Number 120 is Riddler in the Dark, the Charles Soule Legends of the Dark Knight arc. 150 is A Clash of Symbols, the Batman Joker one-shot with the tarot cards. And hey, down at the bottom is still Batman White Knight. Still terrible. All right, so let's start with this is better than our last All Ages book, Overdrive, down at uh, 123. Oh, wow. I was not expecting you to go there and go so low. Well, I just looked at the first book that was in the same line. This Uh, is well, well above that. Yeah, but uh, I just, just I, looking at that as the the first thing to as first comparison. I don't tend to differentiate between all of these weird DC younger lines. I'm looking at Batman and Robin and Howard at 47, and I think it's better than that. Right, that was the other. I, I forgot in my own head. Yes, that is the same line as well. I, I that is not the the next grade level up. Ah, very good. So we're top 50. Okay. So let's I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but I just want to tease this out a little. OK, Batman and Robin and Howard is more of a story than this. Very true. And it has a strong character arc in it. This, on the other hand, is a bunch of shorts. This is trifling. While Batman and Robin and Howard has a little more meat on its bones. Putting it above Batman and Robin and Howard puts in really seriously rarefied air. You, you know, we just did the 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 rundown. You got Sleigh Ride at thirty, and that's that's one of Matt's favorites. That is, and that is a uh, equally somewhat trifly, I admit. If it is above Batman and Robin and Howard, I'm not sure how much above Batman and Robin and Howard it is. Yeah, because this is some good stuff, right? It, Yes. I don't think this breaks the top 40. Looking at 40, that's a Savage Innocence, the John Ostrander Spectre issue where the Joker and the Spectre, you know, have that confrontation and the Joker takes the power of the Spectre and we get Batman's views on redemption. I, I can't put this above that. No. And in the into the 30s and 20s, you get serious stories that are, you know, essential to the canon serious good stories so yeah i i'm i'm not saying that this has to go all the way up but i again you ask me and i i prefer this over batman and robin and howard i i think if we're putting it near batman and robin and howard and i am fine with it going a little bit above that i don't know if it goes above 44 vengeance of bane That's origin of Bane, so first appearance of Bane, so important canonically, and is in itself a really good story. And we've got Adventures Annual number one 
at 45. Refresh me on that one. That is the series of shorts about different times Batman's rogues have tried to walk the straight and narrow. You get the ventriloquist and the, the frog puppet. You get Scarecrow trying to be an English professor. Uh, a cute two-page Harley story by Dan DiCarlo. And the the framing sequence with Roxy Rocket. I would put that above this. Okay, so then the only thing in between that and Batman and Robin and Howard right now is Cry for Blood, which is the Huntress origin with the question and the mob. Do we think this goes right above Batman and Robin and Howard? Do we have this little cluster of these all-ages books right there? I'd put it above Cry for Blood, Okay, but I'm soft on that. All right. So we'll, what what puts this above Cry for Blood for you? I, I don't love all the question stuff as much as you do. That is a valid point. <laughs> I not, think... not that the question stuff is bad. I just don't love it as much you, as you do. You don't have the frame of reference that I do for that question. So there you go. There you go. That that might be something that we look at in our one of our upcoming Patreon projects that we have Ooh. not officially announced yet. So I'm just Ooh. teasing something for that. But some O'Neill Cowan question. You know what? I'll give you this one. So we're going to put this as our <laughs> new 46. It's Thanksgiving. I it am, is so, Thanksgiving. Going to say that Batman's mystery case book will be our new 46. I'm just waiting for the day that uh, Maida Wood drops down to 69. Going to get there. Going to get there. That that you you will have a good you'll have a good day that day, my friend. And, and then I'm going to make sure that nothing nothing goes up above it ever again. We're just going to have to you know weigh the podcast with the really bad stuff after that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have grown to hate Tinian's Joker. I think it should be 79. We have to get there before then. That's all. <laughs> okay. Our second story of the night is Super Friends. This is Batman Adventures Volume 1, number 25. The writer is Kelly Puckett with pencils by Mike Parabek and Rick Burchett, inks by Burchett, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Tim Harkins, edited by Scott Peterson. Cover date is November of 1994. Wayne Tech and LexCorp are competing for a military contract, and a reception has brought Lex Luthor and Clark Kent to Gotham City. But when Maxi Zeus holds the city for ransom with the promise of an earthquake, only a team up of Batman and Superman can save the city. Let me start first by pointing out the Doctor Strange love reference. Did you catch that? Oh, yes. Ah, General Buck Turgidson. Very good. Very good. Let's talk Strange Love trivia. You up on Strange Love trivia? I know I've seen the film on multiple occasions, but ah, oh, very good, perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay, so Peter Sellers obviously plays Doctor Strangelove, Colonel Lionel Mandrake. He was gonna play one other role until he broke his leg. Hmm. President? Oh, I forgot. He Wasn't of course he, he also plays say, the president. Was, yeah, I thought he, he was, was the okay. president too. I I forgot. I forgot President Merkin Muffley. I thought he played the president. Was that the role he was supposed to play? And I'm just misremembering. They got somebody who acted like Peter Sellers. So it was four. He was going to play. Okay. 
was he gonna no he would no riding the bomb that's slim picking that was slim ah Pickens. he was gonna be major kong really really huh i f- that uh, role just feels like it was made for for Pickens. nope 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 okay very good uh we have a legendary actor who makes his very first on-screen appearance in strange love this one i know this is james earl jones ah indeed it is indeed it is okay uh what's the original ending to strange love a legendary deleted scene that has never seen the light of day oh this one i don't know ah oh the original film ends with a banana cream pie fight in the war room but there's there's no fighting in here it's the war room exactly um let's see what's what's my other good one okay there is a line that's redubbed in the film. Okay, you're gonna have to give. Me the, the, I don't know this one either. This is <laughs> so the line is, you know, uh, Major Kong's going over the inventory of uh, all the all the stuff that comes in the pack for the the folks in the uh, in the fighter plane. You know, he's like the the nylons, the cigarettes, the playing cards, and he says, "A fella could have a good time in Vegas with that." What was the original line? I don't. I don't know. I'm. It's got. Oh, there's got to be a serious double entendre to it, right? For the the. I no, no. Really. The 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 real world intruded into the film, and Kubrick redubbed it. Uh, the original line was, "A fella could have a good time in Dallas with all the." Oh, that's interesting. Uh And that was it was right after the Kennedy assassination. So they redubbed it, which also is one of the reasons why maybe they changed the original ending, because uh, Merkin Muffley takes one to the face, uh, a banana cream pie fight, and Turgeson yells out, gentlemen, our young president has been felled. Uh, So, you know, it's maybe some real world uh, concerns causing some uh, some edits to that film. But, yeah, I love Strange Love. I also love Failsafe. Uh, if you haven't seen Failsafe out there, listeners, do yourself a favor. Rent that Peter Fonda, uh, that tense, tense Cold War drama, and then just feel like all of the color drain from your face when you get to the end of Failsafe. And then give give George Clooney's uh, live TV movie version a try, too. Uh, that's got Hank Azaria in it. You know, not bad stuff. Oh. This is what happens when you include Buck Turgidson in a comic. I get all worked up and passionate about Dr. Strangelove. This would be a short episode because it, it's it's all ages stuff. And there's not as much stuff to dig into. So I'm glad that we found some places to extend. But I have one other question uh, okay. before we get started. Why does Lex Luthor look like a goddamn leprechaun in this? That was what I was about to get into. Oh, very good. Very good. Because that is a timestamp. That and Superman's mullet are timestamps of when this book came out. This book predates Superman the Animated Series. This is technically the first DC Animated Universe appearance of Superman. Aside from a Batman and Superman magazine that was released that featured, you know, shorts in that style that were original to the magazine. 
So both Superman and Luthor's designs here are the designs from the comics at that point. Shortly before this, in the comic, Luthor had faked his own death. He had been dying of cancer because he had been walking around with that kryptonite ring on his hand at all times. Because, you know, kryptonite radiation, it only kills Kryptonians, right? Except for the fact... contraire. Right. It kills Kryptonians fast. But guess what? (laughs) It's still friggin' radioactive. So basically, Luthor was dying of radiation poisoning. So he faked his own death and had his brain transferred into a cloned body that looked like a young, like, big... Like, it was burly, and it had Luthor's full head of red hair and a beard. Claimed that it was his son his long-lost son who he'd had hidden away. And for a number of years, he was Lex Luthor II until all of this came out. By the way, the title of the story where it was revealed was called They Saved Luthor's Brain, which is a delightful friggin' title. (laughs) But Uh... because they were using the current comic designs, this has a somewhat dated visual look specifically for our two guests from metropolis because these are not the iconic visions of superman or luthor i mean i knew roughly of superman's you know run in the comics in this era the mullet certainly not a surprise handsome uh but man it is so weird to see luther with this red hair and the beard like normal hair sure but the full leprechaun presentation is off-putting i do not like it at least they didn't have him speaking with the accent because you see luthor's son had been hidden away in australia so lex luthor the second get the get the fuck out a phonetic australian accent Oh, uh, th- no, that all of that's bad. I you're you're lying to me, Matt. You should not lie to me for during Thanksgiving. That's not nice. Uh, just just ask Corey. Just <laughs> ask Corey. This is right in the heart of the triangle era. That is that Corey is working on the book on. Yeah. A- ask Corey about the Lex Luthor the second. It might have been New Zealand. I know it was a I'm 99 percent sure it was Australian and it was an it was a phonetic accent for a while there. That's that's so bad. That's terrible. Although I will say one of the greatest Lex Luthor moments of all time is in that that look at the end of Funeral for a Friend, the post death of Superman story. Luthor earlier in that arc, he was training with a a martial arts master. A woman who was who was supposed to be training him, and she, you know, knocks him down. And Luthor, of course, is pissed because nobody's supposed to, you know, lay out Lex Luthor, even if they're there to train him. And he he kills her. And then at the end, after they found Superman's body, which had been taken by Project Cadmus to try to create a Superman clone, which becomes Superboy, Luthor is standing over the body, and just and talks about how he won, and he basically says that he killed this person just because he could and there was no one to stop him anymore and it is so Oof. warped and so perfectly luthor and we get a little taste of luthor being that way in this story 
because this is Lex planning everything and planning to pull it off under Superman and Batman's nose. Because we, we get this story where, you know, Maxi Zeus has, you know, gotten hold of a bomb and put it on a tectonic, the tectonic plate below Gotham and is going to set it off unless he gets a seriously bizarre series of sacrifices, very much, you know, ancient Roman God sacrifices. And of course, unsurprisingly, it turns out the one who gave him the bomb, because even Batman's like, Maxie's not smart enough for this, was Luthor. Because Luthor is here to prove that his hunter-killer drone robots are a better way to go when it comes to the future of warfighting than the Wayne Tech surveillance and intelligence droids. Little did they know we would combine them both. Uh, yes, and I was going to say, that's the thing. There's a line in here about that Batman says about how war is terrible enough to be able to do it from a distance makes it even worse. It's like, you read that now and it's like, oh, Kelly Puckett, that is terrifyingly prescient. Questions about Maxi Zeus's and his first appearance here on the pod. I assume he's a guy who just got conked on the head. He's a guy who's just complete nut and thinks he's Zeus. He has appeared once on the pod before, twice actually, in very small cameos. Ah. He has a cameo, a brief cameo in Arkham Asylum when Batman is making his way through the asylum and he's there ranting about being Zeus. And he has a cameo in the second issue of Nightfall where you cut to see various you know people escaping as the asylum has been busted open. And you see him run straight into a tree and knock himself unconscious. That seems like a, that seems like a play. Yeah. Maxi is kind of a joke villain, a little less than like say your condiment kings, but not by a ton. He pops up in the Harley Quinn animated series as the supervillain motivational speaker a couple times. <laughs> Uh, but he, he's been dead a long time. He dies at some point or another, gets actually involved with the Greek gods who use him and then dispose of him in a Wonder Woman Batman crossover. It, it doesn't end well for Maxi. But we'll get some other Maxi Zeus over the years. There was there was a time where he was never an A-lister, but at least was novel. His first appearance I, I... is in a Denny O'Neill story, actually, one of the early Leslie Tompkins stories. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, but yeah, I can't imagine Zeus, the actual Zeus, not taking well to someone thinking that he was Zeus. No, poor, poor, poor Maxi. But yeah, he's here. He he does this. I mean, he only appeared in one or two episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and he's very much like, "I am Zeus," and here he's like, "Just I've got my scepter, and I'm going to bring down Gotham." And then in the end, when the scepter, which has the the receiver, taken away, he's like, "Wait." Hephaestus said that I can focus my my power. Ah, I feel the earth moving. And yeah, no, that's just Superman lifting him up. <clears throat> this is one of, I feel like this, by this point in the run, because this is your 25 of Batman Adventures. So far, we've only done, we've actually done 8, 9, and 12. So we are deeper into the run. 
And this feels like a more polished product than those earlier issues. It does. And I, I think the tone is good. The, the, the storytelling here is good. The coloring did not, did not enthuse me here. There's so much just yellow. I feel like the, they they just fell in love with this idea of yellow and so many of the characters have a kind of simpsonian vibe so i'm not eh, i'm not entirely in love with the visuals here but um i wonder about that i wish i had had the time to dig out my floppy because you got to remember this was done on these are these kids books these were on the cheapest quality paper mm. i wonder if this doesn't transfer well to digital. That's a good point. I might be wrong on it. We might look at the floppy and it looks the same, but I would be curious to look at this in print and see if it feels less yellow because the paper is duller. So it would sap some of that brightness out of it that you get digitally. Having said that, I just cranked up the brightness on my iPad all the way up and it does, it does look better, but Zeus is still yellow. One of the things that is nice here is that you see both Batman and Superman, their talent balance here. That Batman is able to do the detective thing, but then you have Superman using his superpowers to solve things that Batman could not as easily without having those powers it is a balanced use of the characters and there's a good middle ground between stories we've seen where they're best friends and stories where we see where they just batman's almost openly hostile toward him almost there's a professionalism to the relationship there's an acknowledgement of we do things differently batman saying straight out that oh yeah i didn't include you in that conversation because i thought you might disapprove of what i was doing with luthor i i like that there is almost attention but not quite attention and i like that bruce in the end clark has some doubts when you get to the end when bruce has basically forced luthor to bow out of this contract because he has found proof that Luthor was behind this. And Clark's like, well, there is this there's like conflict of interest. No, Wayne Tech is going to bow out too. Which, while I think is noble, one would think it's, you know, Superman would be like, well, you are giving them the option that doesn't involve killer robots. So maybe you should stick with the, you know, the, the surveillance drones versus when, I don't know, stag enterprises comes in and proposes napalm <laughs> fuck you Simon stag we'll get to a metamorpho stories someday and that guy is not as bad as luthor but he's not a great guy the ethical decision here is a difficult one because let's say batman is like okay i will i'll stick in the contract and i'll give all my proceeds from that sale to i don't know some charity it's still you know you're drones serving and developing you know a, a history uh, a brand you know it still it still looks bad so i i get what he's doing yeah i i think batman 
Bruce in general would rather Wayne wasn't involved in military contracts short of possibly like body armor and things like that. Anything that could be used really weaponized, I think he would probably rather avoid. But when you've got a board of directors, you kind of have to go where they say in some respects. Even if you own the majority of the stocks through, you know, various shell companies and such very complicated stuff. You probably wouldn't understand. Exactly. Love that. And there's some great, a great final sort of fight sequence at the end with when Batman and Superman bust into Maxi Zeus's headquarters. And I mean, they, they make sure it worked there, but then here come Luthor's droids and Batman has to fight the, the thugs while Superman is fighting the droids. And like the general being kind of annoyed at friendly fire. There is a strange love vibe to this whole thing between a, that bit where he's firing on Superman. I don't like the friendly fire, but I do like the firepower. And then when it looks like the earthquake is going to happen, Gordon being like, it's a little too late to evacuate the city. I wasn't talking about the city. 20 or 30 million million casualties. Tops, tops. Exactly. It was very clear that Puckett was drawing from Strangelove in more than one, more than just the name here. I don't think I have much more to say about the story. Do you? Uh, I don't believe so. But I do want to call out the back of this book has oh. a series of pinups. Oh, Kelly Jones doing an uh, animated series style art. Oh, mm-hmm. oh if you if you want to know what to get Will for Christmas, it's uh, it's getting this uh, Kelly Jones pinup. Oh man, I love it. It's it's beautiful. But I mean, it's not. I mean, Kelly Jones. Yeah, but you also you have Alex Toth. You have the legend Alex Toth. There's three. I mean, all of them are gorgeous. But aside from the 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 Jones, the three that jump out at me are a the Toth, obviously, the Matt Wagner Two Face, because it's Matt Wagner, and I'll always love Matt Wagner, and friggin' Mignola doing the freeze armor that he designed. What a murderer's row of artists! It's gorgeous. And often I wouldn't say, you know, when we're ranking things, pinups and such usually don't weigh into that here. Oh, this is going to, these pinups elevate this a couple of spots because absolutely incredible. And, And it's creators doing a different style, but still with their own hallmarks. Like you can, you know, uh, with the Jones, Specifically, it is, yes, the Batman, the animated series style Batman, but it's still those pointy ears. Mm -hmm. It's still that big scowly face. And uh, Mignola is, that's that's undeniably his style. Like, again, just what a little treat that was undoubtedly lost on all of the kiddos at the time. But, oh, so worth it. Uh, But that, I think, does it for this one. Uh, that means it's time, but the Batman Adventures number 25 on the big board. All right. So right now, our highest adventures is that annual. It is annual two at 45. 
I don't think this is quite there, but the next one is the one from last episode, Larceny My Sweet, down at 90. I think this is better than that. Yes. So, oh, actually, I mean, in all fairness, actually, the highest is technically up at 26, Mad Love. But that was a, a, a special. Yeah. So that doesn't really count. All right. So let's see. I'm trying to see if there's anything else Batman, Superman in that range. And I don't think there really is. Okay. Well, here's, here's a, a question from our last Thanksgiving episode. At 73, we have Homewrecker's Life on Mars, the Brave and the Bold uh, story. That is fun, but I think this is better. I think this still goes above 73. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I don't know how much higher, because again, most anything in the Adventures line is going to be kind of trifly. With the exception of things like Mad Love, and there's a couple of stories we'll get to. I do not think this is better than the ultimate trifle, the where were you the night Batman was killed at 66? Uh, how about long Halloween special now currently at 69? 69? Oh, yes, 69. Hmm. I'd probably read this before I read that again. I think this might be our new 69. Nice. Nice. Yeah, because I think it. I prefer Madness at 68, that Legend of the Dark Knight Halloween special with Mad Hatter. But, I th- yeah, I think this is 69. And again, if anybody out there wants to get me that framed uh, page, Kelly Jones doing Batman animated series, just putting that out there in the world. I do believe that Jones is going to be doing one of the variant covers to Batman, uh, The Adventures Continue, Volume 3, Number 1, by the way. Oh, shit. I'm pretty sure he said something about that on the soon-to-be-abandoned Twitter platform. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right, I'm going to have to be on the lookout for that. Our final story of the night is Who's Scared? This is Scooby-Doo Team-Up Number 2. The writer is Sholly Fish, with art by Dario Brizuela, colors by Heroic Age, letters by Saida Timofante, edited by Christy Quinn. The cover date is March of 2014. Mystery Inc. is invited to speak at the meeting of the Mystery Analysts of Gotham City, but the meeting is broken up by monsters. Ace the Bat Hound and Scooby-Doo realize something is wrong and have to work together to stop the mastermind behind the monster, the Scarecrow. So we were talking about Charlie Fish earlier and his love of DC Comics deep cuts. And, oh, Doctor, the mystery analyst of Gotham City is in itself a deep cut. And then add in the roster that he gives to the mystery analysts of Gotham City. And it's an even deeper cut. Actually, I think the deep, the mystery analyst of Gotham City is the deeper cut, but... The fact that he populates it with characters that are mostly not the original mystery analysts is great. For those just showing off, yeah. For those of you who out there who don't know, the mystery analysts of Gotham City was a sometimes backup in '60s Batman stories, where it was you know various sort of armchair detectives around Gotham working with Batman 
and, you know, solving cases. Gordon was one of them. The DA was one of them. One of them does appear here, but the rest of these are other detectives from across DC history. All of them are established characters. You recognize at least one. I know for Slam Bradley, of yes. course. I knew you recognized Slam. But did you recognize any of the others? I did not, no. Okay, so here's here's your uh, DC Universe history lesson of the night. The one that I recognized the least was Misto, who was a, you know, stage magician detective character. The uh, one who was a member of the mystery analysts was Kay Day, the romance slash mystery novel writer. She was one of the original mystery analysts. And I think it was kind of brought in here because there would have been no other women otherwise. And that, you know, is always lame. The other three are one, Roy Raymond, who was the TV detective. He was a, you know, he did a, a sort of unsolved mysteries type show back in the day of, you know, before, well, before unsolved mysteries. Love it. Yep. Dr. 13 who was the ghost breaker. He did Scooby-Doo before Scooby-Doo did Scooby-Doo. He was this guy who went around and, you know, encountered occult mysteries and proved that they were hokum, but also would then sometimes pull a, you know, a Scully when confronted with, you know, the phantom stranger. Like, no, you're clearly pulling something over on people. Like, dude, he's something not real. It's pretty obvious. No! Uh, also, he is the father of modern DC mystical character Tracy 13. And the final one is a character you rec- you have read somewhere else, but in a very different iteration. You've read this character in their New 52 version. That huh. is Jason Bard. Bard, in his New 52 iteration, appeared in Batman Eternal. He was the guy who took over as commissioner for Jim, who was sort of working with the villains because he thought it was the way to get Gotham, you know, right again. But he was a PI in his original iteration who walked on a cane because of a war wound from Vietnam and was a love interest for Barbara Gordon back in her backup story days when she did was in backup features he reappeared during birds of prey as a you know contact and occasionally would be this sort of ancillary the bat family needs somebody to go in and do some investigation but doesn't want to get directly involved so we'll hire jason bard but those are the mystery analysts of Gotham City in this story. And again, that is a Sholly sh- Fish showing off. And then that was also me showing off, knowing that I didn't need to look up those characters. Amazing. And of course, on the first page here, we also get a reference to Dark Knight Returns. And that's not entirely all that special, but this thing is bugging the crap out of me. It's something we just read and somebody says to another, Oh, there's a lot of lightning here in Gotham. Like they do a visual reference to Dark Knight Returns and they say, oh, there's a lot of lightning here in Gotham. What the hell was that? I have to know. 
Oh, I'm trying to remember. It's not the first time we've seen that joke. I mean, I know there was the lightning in choices in the first of those Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween stories. Oh, oh. It's the second part of the story. Yeah, I was going to say, wait. <laughs> right, it is the second part of that story. This story. Yeah. But there's also that moment in choices where the splash page is Batman on the gargoyle in the shadow. And then you turn the page and there's a crack of lightning and you see Batman lit by the lightning. That's what I thought you might have been thinking of. Because like, they, they do that twice in here. But are you trying to think of the third time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was looking at the first issue or the first page of the first issue, seeing that that reference. And then, oh, yeah, it's the first page of the second issue. OK, I feel better now. Ace says that happens all the time. Gotham has strange weather. Love it. Which love it. Great. Love it. The Scooby-Doo team ups and its follow up. The Batman Scooby-Doo mysteries are wonderful comics. They are fun. They generally play fair and they do not talk down to their readers. These could easily be, oh, this is a kid's comic. But no, they, like the best Scooby-Doo stories, these are absolutely fun little mysteries. And there's a, as are often with the Batman Scooby-Doo stuff, there's a lot of inside jokes, not just there, but Fred constantly talking about, you know, the joy of unmasking a villain and then finally getting to pull off Scarecrow's mask at the end. That's a fun bit. But I want to pull back from the sort of the micro of this story for a minute. And I want to I want to get to the macro because this is, has got me thinking and I, I want your opinion on this as well. OK. Batman and Scooby-Doo logically should not necessarily work in the same universe because Scooby-Doo often works best, not always, but often works best when there is the guy to pull the mask off of. So does Scooby-Doo necessarily work in a world where there is that much occult and supernatural and metahuman? There are exceptions, by the way, these excellent Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated series from the early 20-teens, I think, late aughts, is great. And there is a supernatural aspect to that show. But I tend to find Scooby-Doo working best when it is always a real estate development. What if the Batman who interacts with Scooby-Doo is on like... Earth Scooby-Doo, where there is no supernatural stuff. But you can get away with, like, weird super science to explain a lot of that stuff then. Clayface is still a thing, but he's not a supernatural thing. He's a, you know, science experiment gone wrong kind of thing. I mean, through... Yes. Okay. I mean, throughout Scooby-Doo team-up, there are issues where they do, like, run afoul of the specter. But I think in the end, whatever they're fighting in those stories winds up being the guy in the mask. I just it, it makes me sit back and think about how much of Scooby-Doo works when you no longer have the it all ends with somebody pulling off a mask. 
And again, I know I'm defeating my own thesis by saying how much I enjoyed Mystery Inc., the the series Mystery Incorporated, that had a supernatural element. But so much of Mystery Incorporated was like a serious like character study, like developing the somewhat thin archetypal characters of the Scooby gang into you know three-dimensional characters. It's a really good series if you haven't watched it. And is one of the first real examples of a barely coded queer Velma until now when it's made canonical, which is pretty great. I just, it made me just reading this was like just sitting back and being like, trying to deeply think about, you know, how Scooby-Doo works in a world where there is the supernatural. And then also thinking nobody sits back and thinks about this. It's just, it's Batman meeting Scooby-Doo and that's fun and just go for it. So I, I'll get your thought on this because I gave this series at least a little bit of a try. What did you think of Scooby Apocalypse? Not anything against it. It was just since I read so much in print, there's only so much, uh, so much I can do. Although if if, it, if that's up on Infinite, I might dig into it because it's what it's Keith Giffen writing it. Is it Giffen? How? I mean, what did you think of it? I'm curious. I I probably didn't find much if anything beyond the first issue like i remember picking it up and been like uh okay uh, uh, uh. so it didn't hook me whatever it was I, I also think that i was pretty zombied out by the time scooby apocalypse was coming out yeah because that was 2016 and by that point, it was like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do any more zombie versions. Like, I, I'd long since given up on Marvel zombies. And I at the, yeah, yeah, it was given to Mateus, which is a great writing team. And how wow, the artists on it were really good, too. Yeah, Howard Porter, Daily Eaglesham, Ron Wagner, Jander Seema. Wow. Maybe I do have to go back and look at this. But. I just, I was at that point was like, it's why I skipped deceased initially. It's like, I don't need any more friggin' zombie worlds. I've read all of walking dead. I don't necessarily need another zombie comic unless it's doing something really interesting. All of walking dead. Really? Yeah. I didn't start walking dead in floppies, but I bought the first trade of walking dead the day it dropped. And I read until the end in trade every time. Yeah. All 193 issues. I could not get past the art style. See, I like Charlie Adler. Charlie Adler, I have a soft spot, a um, a nostalgic spot for Adler because his the first thing I ever saw him do was the X Files comics, and I loved those X Files comics. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, I can understand why someone wouldn't be in love with his style, but I I've always had a soft spot for it. Like, if I try to picture it in my mind, I wind up picturing something like XKCD. Like, or no, 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 not, not XKCD, Control-Alt-Delete. Like, okay. it just, it just, it did not seem to fit the tone of post-apocalyptic zombie horror to me. And I think I made it, I made it through the first arc, and I was like, eh, I don't get it. Oh, the first arc has a different artist than the rest of the series. Like, oh. the artist changes with volume two, and that guy does the entire series until the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, give it a look at the second trade. Because I was going to say, I thought Adler's work suits it, but it's like, it's much very different than the the first volume. 
Adler's uh. art is much grittier, much dirtier. But wow, we are we are tangenting hard. <laughs> um, I, why did nobody tell me this about Walking Dead until now? Hey, boy, boy, that's boy. Okay. part of what I'm here for, brother Will. Mm, I've I've got uh, I've got an idea for leftovers now. Okay, but we you mentioned him as well. But this story is Ace the Bat Hound. This is Ace and Scoob, and it's a very Silver Age Ace. It's you know he a looks like Silver Age Ace. He wears the mask. He wears the mask and cape, which I love. I love that Scooby gets to wear a Robin mask and cape. I want to do all of the Batman Scooby-Doo stuff, but I'm while they're all generally one-offs, I don't know in the future if we're going to do these one by one because there's not a ton. Because it's a Scooby-Doo story. If, you, if you've read one Scooby-Doo story, you have literally read them all. They all follow the same pattern. But the gags right. change. Right. The gags change. And, you know, it, it's the, the devil and a good Scooby-Doo story are in the details. Mm. And this one, there is a great bit where, you know, this giant spider attacks that it turns out, of course, is Scarecrow Fear Toxin. But everyone is seeing a different monster. And we only get that when you get a little deeper into the story. It's like, oh, that's cool. And, of course, the fact that Scarecrow's toxin doesn't affect animals or at least this version of it doesn't, gives us a story where Ace and Scooby have to be the ones who take care of the case. And I like that. I like that this is a Scooby-Doo story that is Scooby having to take care of the case. You know, it always winds up being Freddy with the trap and Velma with the brains. But no, Scooby has to put on a brave front, which we usually don't get. Because the whole joke is that Scooby's, Scooby and Shaggy are cowards. But here, Ace is going to go after Scarecrow. And Scooby's initially like, oh, no, I don't think I can go. But then he's like, wait, no, my friends are in trouble. I need to go and deal with this. I like that gives that dimension to Scooby. I was trying to remember if this story made the point or not about why Scarecrow is stealing things. No. He's just stealing things. And I think that that's a Scooby-Doo thing. They're not going to go into deep psychological motivations for your villains here. I, I keep having the feeling that we just read something that was like, oh, yeah, fear gas ingredients are expensive. That's why I need to steal. But I'm, I'm clearly imagining many things tonight. I believe that in that case, I think we had a discussion about that as to why would Scarecrow need to be stealing this stuff in choices. In that long Halloween special where he's creating the blackouts and it's like, oh, he was doing it to rob. Like, well, why? It's like, well, fear of gas is expensive. And it wouldn't be Batchat without a Star Trek tangent. What does God need with a starship? <laughs> a, a classic question. Oh, I cannot wait for Strange New World season two. I want I want some payoff on that little tease. I told you it was good, didn't I? Oh no, I, I, I we had caught up by the end, and we were wa- the last couple episodes we watched as they dropped. I'm I'm curious what they're going to do with Picard. Oh, and and here's here's one realization that I've I've finally come to, and I think it's going to be my going to be my head now. Wesley is totally Picard's son because so much of Next Generation makes more sense that way. 
Was it in Star Trek 400, the recent comic where there was a Wesley Picard short? Uh, I saw that Will Wheaton, uh, Will Wheaton wrote that, and so I'm like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look at that. Okay, I, but that I, does sound like something that did exist, yeah. Because I remember the only thing that I distinctly remember from that was the prequel to the new Lansing Kelly series, which I am oh, I'm looking forward to more of that. Uh, I gotta read that. It's good. It's good. It's it's uh, yeah. I do, do. I mean, again, we we've been tangenting all over the place here, but other than you know mentioning all the fun inside jokes and you know, but it's an A to B to C Scooby Doo plot. It's fun. And it's well written. We get some Scoob. The dogs of the stars, which is good. I I enjoy that. I think we're we're probably good on this one. Uh, that means it's time. But Scooby Doo team up number two on the big board. This is chapters three and four. Yes, exactly. This is real trifling. This is probably in the trifle zone of the 90s. I'd say the 90s aught, early aughts. All of that are one or two issue trifles. Gotham City Villains, Anniversary Giant, Brotherhood got, of the Fist. Right. I mean, you got Batgirl, year, Batgirl Day 1 and Robin Year 1 at 99 and 100. I think it's a little lower than that. Okay, well, here's the thing. First, it is much less meaty than Injustice Gods Among Us Volume 1 at 112. But the thing is, here, Dario Brizuela draws this story really well. Brizuela's art is great. He captures the different characters and their designs. If, if we look at more Scooby-Doo team-up, outside of the the pod that has non-batman he does a great job of capturing all of these different characters the reason why that is down at what would i just say 112 as opposed to up in like the 70s is because the art is so wildly friggin inconsistent and at its low points it is absolutely wretched and dc should still be ashamed of itself for putting out anything of that quality so that being the case does this go above that or does this fall below that? Because this is much less, much, much less substantial, but looks much, much better. I would I would put it above Injustice. Remind me about Blind Justice at 111. Blind Justice is the Detective Comics 600, that wild thing with the mad scientist with the brain hopping circuitry that also gave him mind control abilities and there was an amnesiac and his sister who lived with Bruce and Bruce was temporarily in a wheelchair and the Batcave had no wheelchair ramps. And there was the bone crusher, this series uh, of guys in the masks. Oh, uh, you just, you just made all of that shit up. A first appearance of Henri Ducard is in there. It's a whole lot of crazy ideas crammed into two really oversized issues and one regular sized issue in the middle. Wild. It's got some good ideas, but nothing is developed well enough. I I think your superpower is being able to to firmly place all of these stories in your brain. Yes, I you know, it's for prior to the internet 
my memory was a frighteningly useful thing. Now that everyone has the internet, it's a little less so. But the fact that I can do it faster than Google comes in handy. I think this is better than Mud Pack. Something we just did at 108. I don't think it's better than Brotherhood of the Fist at 106. I like Brotherhood of the Fist with the monkeys. I, I like that. It's Again, it's kind of trifling, but it's friggin' fun. Look, once you've established a ninja monkey ranking system, I'm here for it. Exactly. Uh, so then, all right, so it's better than Mud Pack. So the only thing in between there is the Misfits, which is the Alan Grant, Tim Sale... Four loser supervillains kidnap Bruce Wayne, Mayor Crawl, and Jim Gordon and put them in a train car filling with water. Ah, the gentleman's tobacco smoker's pipe knife, whatever that was. Yes. Uh, oh, wait, I've got it right here. The Joseph Rogers gentleman's pipe smoker's knife. There we go. There we go. Former sponsor. We appreciate you. That one is good. And while the last issue was good, the last issue had severe pacing problems. In that we got like three pages of origin of Chancer and Nimrod the Hunter, and we don't see how Bruce got out of the the train car. It's like Tim is diving down, Bruce is working at it from the inside, then we go two pages later and they're out. We really didn't need that origin stuff. We could have used two pages of watching them get out of the train car. The mayor was such a shit in that story. Oh, wait, you haven't you barely seen what a shit Armand Crawl can be. Wait, he is the worst. Uh, 107, how's that? Yeah, yeah, in between Brotherhood of the Fist and Misfits. So, you know, that does it for the night. But before we, we go, it is Thanksgiving. And so I would like to first say that I'm thankful for you, my friend, for Aww. joining me for the past year and change on this crazy journey of batman ranking and i'd also like to thank all of you out there for listening we're not the biggest podcast but y'all listen week in week out and i appreciate you listening to us ramble about batman for an hour and change each week yes and i will second both of those sentiments i too am thankful for myself i'm glad to be here and i'm thankful for you matt and all of our listeners and it's always fun. This is always a, a highlight of my week, even as now we're recording on a Friday, throwing everything off. I was able to get Wednesday tickets to see the Studio Ghibli classic Spirited Away on the big screen. Fair enough. Sometimes when you get those limited engagement movie tickets for the big screen for a, uh, an animated classic, you got to go with it. Next week, we'll be back on our regular schedule, and we will be once again joined by our pal Josh Wheel to talk about three stories of Batman meeting the team and members that are Young Justice. We'd like to thank our patrons, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, (laughs) Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye, Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, as long as it exists, at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. 
You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm on the world's worst investment, at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>